You're listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., featuring conference keynote speakers, panelists, and newsmakers. To join PRSA or register for the conference, visit prsa.org. My guest today is Dave Fletcher. He's the founder and executive creative director of The Mechanism, which is a multidisciplinary design agency with offices in New York, London, and Durban, South Africa. Dave, thanks for doing this. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure for being here. Uh, thanks for the honor of having me on the show. So now you are doing this session at the PRSA International Conference uh, on Sunday, October 17th, um, 2010 at 4.45 p.m. And the name of the session is Compelling Social Media Strategies Soaring with uh, Flight of the Concords. What was your involvement in the Flight in the Concords campaign? And if you would, just sort of give us a summary of what it was all about. Flight of the Concords had a website up for probably about seven, eight years that was put up essentially as a blog and had not been maintained for some time. So what had happened in the meantime is that the band had uh, been signed to uh, HBO for their series, and HBO was handling the majority of the online face of the band. So uh, what, what the band decided to do, along with their management, was to retool the site that they had and try to capture uh, some of the, uh, the audience that either was not finding them at all or continuing to go to their old site and seeing nothing new or going to the HBO site. Now, um, I know you're sort of an advocate of tying all your various presences on social media together at you know, a home base, a destination site. Yeah. Why is that so important to, to gather your various social media efforts and put them in one easy-to-access place? I think that the advantage that we have now is being able to use all of these external sources, being able to pull them into a singular brand. Because the small amounts of control that we have in other websites, the YouTubes and the Facebooks and um, you know, the MySpaces, are not total control. You know, for so many years, companies invested so heavily, and they still do, in customer relationship management technology because they wanted to have access to their customer database. Um, mm-hmm. But now you see organizations, companies using uh, Facebook to basically collect friends online as they you know, go through their marketing endeavors. And mm-hmm. I, I just was introduced to this new, um, you may know it, JanRain user management platform for the social web. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know one of those is, for listeners. If you if you're going to websites these days and you get a little pop up that says you can sign in with Facebook, Twitter, Yahoo, or MySpace, there's now software that you can attach to your destination website. And of course, if someone signs in with their Facebook username and password or their Twitter ID, uh, you know they become a, a, either a Twitter follower or a Facebook friend. And what was so interesting, they have a little 90-second video, video on the Jan Rain um, website, and I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes. They talk about how Lady Gaga is using it on her destination site, 
and they say she's doubled her registration rates because when you go to the Lady Gaga website, you know, this pop-up comes over the screen. And unless you sign in with your Facebook, Twitter, Google, or Yahoo credentials, you don't get to visit the site. Um, the interesting thing I noticed, though, with her site and, and this demo for John Ryan is not only is she collecting the follower on Facebook, it looks like they actually port that registration over to her own database so she can, you know, cement, she can house that data and own access to that data because as we've seen from, you know, Facebook's um, change to their terms of services, I mean, you wouldn't want to be beholden on a social network uh, for access to your to your potential customers right i think that's a really good point of uh, people have to go to lady gaga's website in order to you know log into that system it's not the other way around it's not like i have to go to you know john rain's website and then there's a link to the lady gaga site from there um as social media uh tools change and modify over time somebody is always going to you know outpace the next so artists or or companies or whomever are smart to to utilize what they have make sure it's the the destination point is their website that's taking them somewhere else because tomorrow there may be something else that you would want to focus your users eyes on your website to go to there are so many uh, services out there to help organizations build a website. Many of them offer some sort of a template, and then you can customize that template. And then, of course, there are the content management solutions that start as a blank slate, and you have to you know, design the user experience right into that site. Um, walk us through, if you would, the rationale behind steering a client to, to making the right decision. Like, which type of a client should, you know, just build it from the ground up and, you know, design their own experience? And which type of a client's going to be better served relying on sort of off-the-shelf, you know, templatized technology? The first step is finding out who their audience is. What do they want? Because, you know, the, the number of these um, uh, back-end systems don't all necessarily do exactly what your your client needs uh some clients have very very specific needs and some just want to have a system that they can edit delete and add news edit delete and add blogs modify some photo galleries there's a lot of systems out there that will allow them to do that but once you begin to build on top of those those systems and they start asking for very specific sort of ways of manipulating the data, then you begin to need to look into more customized solutions. So this is uh, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America's International Conference. And, you know, pre-web, pre-web uh, what we used to do is we would print out our press materials and we would put them in a two-pocket presentation folder. And, of course, we would decide what went on top and what went on the bottom. That was essentially our, our experience with interface design. And now, uh, as the uh, press kit has been replaced with the online newsroom, um, you know, we're starting to realize that it's not just about the quality of the content we create and upload to the newsroom. It's whether or not people can find it and get what they need. And that sort of you know, makes our job a little tougher because in the past, all we had to do was just you know, get the right message out to the right audience. 
But now, if the interface isn't easy to use, we miss our audience. So what, right. what, what guidelines do you have for listeners about what makes a great interface? The means of, of getting into your website and navigating the website are more important than uh, you know, uh, a rotating photo gallery or some, some splashy graphics or some, some good music on the, uh, on the front of the site. If you know and can pinpoint what the audience needs, you need to design an interface uh, navigational system that is tailored to that audience. That's, you know, when you look at any website you go to, there's a list of the most important things right at the top level, and that's, you know, your, your, your main navigation. If you can identify and pinpoint what it is that your audience needs, you can give them at the homepage the most easy and easy to see and easy to, to uh, navigate means to get to those pages on the inside of the site because your homepage is your introduction. Right, so your introduction, just like uh, you know your first impression, needs to look good, needs to speak in the the words of the brand that you've you're you're trying to sell, and it needs to give people the information that you have determined that they need to have. So um, basically, you're saying uh, you know usability before aesthetics, right? Yes. And the other thing you're saying is you got to anticipate whatever task your visitor needs to achieve and make it easy for them to achieve it. Right. But what sets you, the bar? Right. I mean, you know, you look at something like Facebook, you know, with mm-hmm. which is, you know, taking over the, the, the universe at this point. And do you think they set the bar for ease of use? No. No. In fact, uh, every time that they make a change, they alienate you know, their, their core audience who right now, because there's nothing really out there that's, that's more widely accepted than it for, for what it does, they adapt. Um, but you can't expect, you know, your audience of your, uh, you know, your, your company website to bother wanting to adapt right out of the gate. If you're launching something new, I know that Facebook, when it launched was a much simpler simpler system, but they continue to add things on. Um, there's some, some great decisions that they are making, um, but I think there's some, some dangerous decisions that they're, they're looking at as well. I know that uh, there is something about them uh, uh, allowing people to have a little bit more control over visually the way your profile looks. Um, I don't think that that's particularly a good idea. So you, um, you, you like mm-hmm. the fact that there's some uniformity there? There has to be. When you have something as widely accessed by as many people, you have to let the audience decide what they like and what they don't like. And um, it, this is, this is a, a, a very, very complex social media site. And I would imagine that probably a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of people who have companies or work for companies or determine how the design or the UI is meant to be created for corporate sites are not looking necessarily at a at building a, a, a social a social network. The growth on um, you know the advertising uh, in the social networks is 
significant. I mean, it just keeps going up and up. And of course, that's money that in the past was spent against mainstream media. Now it's, you know, advertising against consumer generated media. And what, if any disadvantage, do you think that puts on a brand that's looking to connect with an audience on a site like Facebook and Facebook, you know, could be selling advertising on your page to your competitor? Or maybe right. if it's not your direct competitor, you know, it's somebody competing for your market's attention. Well, it's a disadvantage. I think when, when you're, if, if you're a company and you're going to put all of your, um, you know, all of your, your, your media uh, planning into something like Facebook, uh, you have to expect that it is a system that you do not ultimately have control over. You can, you can certainly use it to build a fan base or, or connect people to your brand, but ultimately you don't have control over it. I, I would imagine that down the road there'll be some sort of payola scenario where a company can, can have their Facebook page and have their, uh, their advertising only on their page. But right now it's, you know, the whole, whole advertising system on the right side there is still in its infancy. It's funny, um, you, know, you know, given yeah. the, the information overload that we all experience on a daily basis and, you know, what it really takes to get our attention, you know, yeah. drama, conflict, tension, something interesting, that's what typically gets our attention. And we see so many organizations um, agonizing over whether or not to participate in social media because they don't want to lose control of the conversation, yet they're perfectly willing to lose control of the interface, uh, you know, and hang out on Facebook and, and create content for other people to advertise against. So my thought has always been it's not what they say, it's where they say it. Because, right. you know, as, as, as Michael Dell and, and his operation, they've shown us, I mean, let them complain on your own destination site, it'll winds up being a... Uh, you know, a, a magnet for pulling people from both sides uh, of of the debate to your site where you can advertise against it. Whereas, you know, if you don't participate, someone else is going to advertise against it. The disadvantage that uh, you have with putting everything into your just your site without using external social media sites is that you're missing out on the much bigger conversation which is going on through uh, iPads and iPhones and you know sure. other devices that you know places like Facebook and Flickr and uh, YouTube have the uh, resources to build out that uh, that conversation into other types of uh, you know other other uh, uh, you know, device types. I was listening to a recent episode of For Immediate Release Live, uh, which is the Hobson and Holtz report, and they were doing a live conversation about Facebook. And Steve Rubell, who's the uh, SVP director of uh, uh, Insights at Digital at, at, at Edelman Digital, said that he he sort of was talking about this homeland embassy strategy, where your destination site is your homeland. And certainly you, you build embassies in these social networks to participate in those vibrant conversations, but you always have, you know, you're always mindful of the relationship between the embassy and the homeland. And of course, you know, the homeland would be where you would actually cement those relationships. That's a great analogy, the homeland uh, concept. Um, and it's up to companies to, unfortunately, in the world that we live in now, if you don't put your company on Facebook, 
somebody else is going to. If you don't put your band on Facebook, somebody else is going to. And while you can you can certainly have uh, you know lawsuits flying here, there, and the other place. In the meantime, while all that stuff is going on, the cease and desist orders, um, somebody is having a conversation about you without you having uh, you know uh, put put it in place to have it start in the first place. We're talking to Dave Fletcher. He's the founding partner and creative director at The Mechanism. And when we come back, we're going to talk to him about the impact of mobile on the world of communications. Stay with us. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. I find myself increasingly... um, captivated by my my droid and my apps and using social networking tools i mean i rarely use it for phone calls anymore um what about addressing uh, a mobile communication strategy how do you do that do you build a second site do you use some software that regurgitates your site for mobile um and and what considerations should communicators be thinking about uh, if they are intent on reaching audiences through smaller screens, there's a, a website uh, hicksdesign.co.uk. Uh, what they're doing right now is they've built a website that is a single bit of of CSS, uh, cascading style sheets, all the all the code behind it. It's meant to work on uh, mobile devices iPad, your computer, various resolutions, and you can if you you play with it and you open it up and you you make the the screen smaller, you'll see that everything sort of drops down into a single line when you're about the width of a of a mobile device. And what it also has is some nifty little scripts that reduce image sizes or enlarge image sizes, so that essentially the conversation that's going on in the web the web design community right now is how do we begin to design a single site that functions on all devices. You know, I'll tell you, on my mobile device, when I have to, when I have to, I'll go to the web, but I don't really go to the web that much on my mobile device because most of the sites are so hard to use there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, and of course, the cover of uh, Wired Magazine this month said the web is dead, which is pretty much, uh, you know, a, a, an argument that um, it's all about apps in the future. What do you think? I mean, are apps really that important? Are they going to replace the web? Is HTML5 going to have a future? What do you think? It's all about speed of information. 
it's all about how much time we have to uh, to find something or to access something that we're particularly interested in. And if we have tools that allow us to uh, to focus our attention uh, rather than kind of hunt and peck. And I, I'm I'm you know sort of from the the old school in some ways that you know I find some really really interesting things if I'm just you know. Uh, digging around on the web, but I, I certainly don't have a hell of a lot of time to do that. Um, and I think that they're, you know, Wired is clever because they're, they're I remember when I saw the cover on, on my desk, I, I thought it was a bit, uh, a bit snarky because really what they're, what they're saying is the web is dead to the gadget elite. You know, there's the people you know that that have all these little toys and their iPads and and iPods and uh, you know Android phones and and et cetera et cetera. But the majority of you know the majority of the people out there, um, you know, uh, aren't on the fastest connections at home. Still, there's places you know all over this country that still you know don't have access to broadband. So you know they're c- communicating to that audience and saying the web is dead is you know is ludicrous because they're going to keep using you know they're going to keep using browsers and browsing the web but the future is is uh, is going to be you know uh, devices like the iPad and applications that are released by you know a uh, a company to direct your attention to to one place and then allow you to access certain bits of data that they want you to access um, and, you know, uh, focus your attention in one place. Um, and we'll see how well Apple does with their, their iAds and, and, you know, not diverting our attention from, from uh, you know, from the applications we're trying to use. You know, I actually, um, one of the reasons I didn't buy an iPhone is uh, because I felt as th- I've always felt Apple is an anti-competitive company. Um, you know, you can't sync anything but an iPod with iTunes. Um, mm-hmm. So, and also, you know, the fact that they sort of gate the apps that they'll load on the App Store um, deterred me as well. And, but I should say, at the end of the day, it was the relationship with AT and T. Um, one, because AT and T has terrible reception in Los Angeles, where I live. Uh, but two, because um, uh, I had a bad experience with the company years ago that I just never was able to let go of. Uh, <laughs> and ever, actually, ever since then, uh, 20 years ago, I've never given them a nickel of my money. Um, but it's interesting because Apple has my, – my wife has an iPhone, and so I am familiar with it, and I've used it. And I also do have a, a MacBook Pro in addition to a PC. And, you know, obviously, my my – experience on those devices is quite good. I think it's a good interface and the iPhone feels like a very stable OS. It actually feels more stable than my Droid. But I like the fact that the Droid is open and that anyone can, you know, upload an app to the um, uh, marketplace without getting the approval of, uh, of Droid. But as I've been reading in the news, because Droid is so open, they're really struggling to uh, maintain the OSs on so many different devices with so many different versions, whereas, you know, the um, the sort of uh, czarist approach that Steve Jobs has taken has, you know, 
basically up to now meant a smoother uh, user experience because he regulates everything. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if you could comment on which one do you think will win? Do you think they'll both win? You know, what are the benefits and drawbacks? How does somebody decide, you know, which one is, is better for them? Ultimately, between the, the Apple system and the, the Google system, you have developers on both sides doing some really good stuff and some really cool stuff. Um, as far as who who's going to going to win in the long run i think that you know you have to you have to be careful with a a company that um, allows anyone to upload applications into a store without any kind of regulation and the reason reason for that is that you have unscrupulous individuals who are going to load up things with with viruses or just means of of collecting data from your phone uh there are people who are who are going to take shortcuts in development and uh i've seen a lot of those with with applications on uh on google and on on apple to that for uh as well but it's it's it, it kind of it kind of goes to to another argument, um, which was and I, I I apologize for sort of going off topic a little bit, but it was uh, the decision for Apple not to use Flash, not to allow Flash to be used, and I was having a discussion with somebody about it, and it relates to the same thing, that the problem is is that there's really good developers in Flash out there, and there's really lousy developers in Flash out there, and both of them can create. Uh, a Swift file and put it up online for anybody to see. Now, the ones that that are taking shortcuts or don't know how to develop within the the language well enough, they're gonna they're the ones that are gonna make your browser crash. And what Apple doesn't want to do is allow people to create um, experiences that allow their browsers to crash because the first thing that people blame who don't know anything about the the plugins in a browser is they're going to blame their browser or they're going to blame the the company if their iPad crashes because somebody because they're they're watch they're experiencing a flash piece on their iPad um, somebody's going to blame the iPad itself they're not going to blame the developer when you look at phones you have the same sort of thing if your phone is crashing all the time because you have a really nifty app that wasn't programmed properly you're gonna you're gonna curse the phone and not the developer, ninety um, percent of the time. So, I think that you know if you're if you're sort of making a decision on on who to go with, you you certainly have to look at the 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 network, and make sure that you can actually make phone calls because these are phones first of all, um, and if you can't make a phone call, then there's no point in having it, and certainly. You know, AT and T didn't build a network that could sustain the amount of of traffic that the iPod caused. But I also think that in time, the networks that are the Verizon's and the other smaller networks that are out there that are kind of laughing and taking you know taking pot shots at AT and T are going to learn over the next six months to a year that their their networks can't withstand 
the massive amount of bandwidth transfer that's going on because of uh, you know all of the Android phones that are out there on their networks. So it's going to get really interesting. Uh, Dave Fletcher is founder and executive creative director at The Mechanism, a multidisciplinary design agency with offices in New York, London, and South Africa. He will be presenting a session titled Compelling Social Media Strategies, Soaring with Flight of the Concords at the Public Relations Society of America International Conference in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, October 17th, uh, 2010. Uh, his session is at 4.45 p.m., and uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, Dave, thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., to subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, post a comment to the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at On The Record, or send an email to eric at ericschwartzman.com. This podcast has been a special production of On The Record Online and the Public Relations Society of America. Unlike normal productions of On The Record Online, This episode recording cannot be duplicated without explicit permission from PRSA.